You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Uh, we have, uh, I have weird speech quirks. Some of you are aware of this, that I have uh, certain things that I'll do. By the way, you who listen to me preach on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, you know, could probably play bingo with specific sort of quirks that I have. Uh, my, my last pastor would have a quirk where he would hitch his pants kind of randomly uh, around. Also, side note, right, whenever he was up there and someone else was doing something, that's a weird place for a pastor to be. You don't understand this necessarily, but where there's like something going on up here, but the pastor's still on stage as like a prop. And so we just kind of stand like this. This is the official pastor standing like a prop that we have to do when something's going on that we're not really directly involved with. Um, but he would have this weird thing of like flexing his glutes, uh, while that was going on. Right. And so one Sunday I was sitting uh, on the front row because I'm a good person and I was sitting on the front row and my pastor's turn kind of like a quarter, like three quarters in. And then like, I'm watching the actual, like, he's just eye candy, not even supposed to be up there. Right. And I'm watching whatever's going on here. Um, I don't even remember what it was announcement or something. And then all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see his pants just flick. I'm like, what is going on? And it was like every five seconds he was doing this weird thing. By the way, Woody, if you're watching right now, hey, buddy. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, what, uh, you know, it's just something I, I, I got onto him after the service bus. I said so that was very distracting uh, to me, and I can't imagine what it would have done to the young ladies. Um, but, uh, <laughs> right, but, but we have quirks. We have things that we say. And one of the quirks that, that we have fallen into, that culturally we've fallen into, is we use a word and we take the power away from the word because we use it too much. Uh, and the word that I want to focus on today is the word awesome. Right? Awesome is a word um, that should mean awe-inspiring. Like when you encounter something that you're like, whoa, that's an awesome experience. Like I went to the Grand Canyon uh, and I was standing at the top of the Grand Canyon. I looked down at the Grand Canyon. I thought, whoa. That's it. like just the, the, the idea like that is... It's, it, it is awe-inspiring. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen some things in nature, and you're just like, wow, that's amazing. Right? A birth of a child, right? You, you, you hold your child for the first time, and in that moment, you're looking at your, your, your precious little child, um, and you're like, wow. Right? That's an awesome experience. But you know what's not an awesome experience? Cheesy fries. Right? They can be good. Right? You could have cheesy fries, and they might be the best cheesy fries you've ever had, but you know what? They're not. You're not like, this is a transcendent moment in human history. I, I must tell people about these cheesy fries. Right, we, don't, we don't experience cheesy, but someone will say, man, the cheese fries, those, those cheese fries are awesome, right? You got to go to such such and get those cheese fries. They're awesome. Right? Everything can be awesome, right? Uh, a, a new pair of shoes can be awesome. An old pair of shoes can be awesome. A house can be awesome. A car can be awesome. A road can be awesome. Anything can be awesome because we use the word so flippantly. We just throw it out there, right? Like uh, I, I was, my tendency to use the word awesome, I don't think is in speech. Or maybe it is to some degree. But it's when I'm writing in responses to people. So if you text me something and it's good, right, I feel bad writing, oh, that's good. Right, because you can read that a lot of ways, like, oh, Matt's not really that excited about it, right? So I, I embellish to say it's awesome, right? That's an awesome thing. And there are awesome things that I get communicated by text message. I had a, someone message me um, 
yesterday, maybe the day before. Um, and, and last Sunday, uh, we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to do uh, the funeral service for, for Gene Alford. Uh, Jean uh, was a member of our church since 1944, a faithful woman, a wonderful, wonderful mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, truly a, a, a good demonstration of what a faith-filled life looks like. Uh, but, but at the end of that, you know, and I'm in there and I share the gospel and, and I walk away and I always feel good when I leave a funeral. I did a wedding this Saturday, by the way, and I did a funeral last Sunday and I'll take a, a, a good or an average wedding or a, a funeral over the best wedding that I've ever done. Because at the end of a good to average funeral, like I'm done and it's done and it's, there's nothing bad that can come back at me. In a wedding, I don't know what's going to happen, right? In six months, I could be getting a phone call saying something crazy's gone on, right? Like, so, so I'll take a good funeral. Um, not, I'm not looking forward to any of y'all's specific funerals right now. I had that conversation earlier today, all right? I'm not looking forward to any of y'all's specific funerals. But some of y'all, when you pass, like, it will be a joy for me to do your funeral. Not because I long for that day, but because God has been faithful in you. Uh, and I'll be able to proclaim God's faithfulness because of you. Uh, but I did the funeral for Jean, and I, and I received a message later in the week. And it was from um, a, a relative who was there, and their daughter uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ because of the conversations that started at the funeral. That's awesome, right? That's, a, that's an awe-inspiring moment that God could use that to touch the life of a young child, uh, to bring them to a point of salvation, moving from death to life. That's an awesome experience. But we throw awesome out for everything. Right, and we get awed by some things that we shouldn't be awed by today. And we're going to be going through the book of Esther. If you have your Bible, open to the book of Esther. Esther's tough to find because it's in the part of your Bible that kind of sticks together because you don't go there very often, okay? So um, Esther is before uh, Psalms and Job, right? So you go uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, okay? Um, Job is 50-something chapters, maybe 50 on the knot. Psalms is 150. Esther's right before those two long books. And kind of buried in there, just a short little book. But in the story of Esther, um, we have the story of, of an awesome God and a lot of not awesome people who think they are. Right? A lot of people who think that they're awesome, right? but they're f failing in comparison to the awesomeness of God. So we're going to begin in Esther chapter 1, looking at this, the, what is and is not awesome about mankind and then what is awesome about God Almighty. Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, uh, fastened with cords of linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of 
the king. We're going to stop there just briefly. To start the beginning of the story of Esther, we need to have some idea of who this Ahasuerus guy is. And he's better known um, by his Greek name historically. Um, he's better known by his Greek name, which is Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. That's a good Scrabble word if it wasn't a proper noun, apparently. Um, you can't use it in Scrabble. But, but you have Xerxes, and um, Xerxes was the third king of the Medo-Persian Empire, right? The Perso-Median Empire. And what he did um, was he was a powerful king. His grandfather uh, was, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, so I think it was Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who began the, the opportunity for the Jewish people to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. That, that process began underneath Cyrus. He, he freed, uh, he, he conquered Babylon, which is a pretty big deal to take down the biggest world power of, of, of the day. Uh, and through that, uh, he began to show his goodness to some different people groups. So he sent, allowed certain Jewish people to go back home and begin to rebuild the two books before Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, deal with the building of the temple and the building of the wall around Jerusalem. All of that happened because Cyrus sent the people back, gave them letters and said they were coming back. They have authority to come back. The most powerful man in the world when Cyrus lived was Cyrus. Cyrus died. His son Darius took over. Darius, like Cyrus, was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled um, fairly well. You'll see stories about him in the book of Daniel. If you read that, you'll see Darius jump up, I believe, um, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, Darius is the king of record. Remember, no one can pray to anyone except for me. Um, Daniel says, well, I'm going to keep doing what I do. Praise to God Almighty. Gets thrown in a pit of lions, uh, much to Darius's chagrin because he loved Daniel, uh, desired Daniel's counsel. Um, God preserves Daniel, pulls him out, and Darius puts everyone to death who conspired against Daniel. Darius lived a, a relatively full life. Um, but he had one major black mark against him, whereas Cyrus uh, was undefeated, right? He was, uh, you know, Floyd Mayweather Jr. going anywhere he went. Uh, he knocked people out, right? Babylon knocked him out. Any country that came against him knocked him out. Cyrus uh, was, was an excellent, excellent general. Darius was pretty good. He had the power of the entire empire, and he said, I'm not done expanding. And so he took his army and he crossed into Greece. Greece was an emerging world power. They were beginning to come to their own. Um, they had the Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens and all those areas that you know about from your way-back history classes that you took way back when. And Greece was an ascending power, and to keep them down, um, Darius invaded uh, Greece and was soundly defeated. Came back uh, with his tail between his legs, back, uh, and died in relative disgrace. His son, Xerxes, takes over the crown, and three years into his, uh, into his rule, he has this party recorded in the book of Esther. The purpose of this party, historically, is not uh, what we'll see throughout the rest of the book here. The purpose of this party was he was gathering support from everyone in his reign, from India to Ethiopia. By the way, that's a lot of the world, right? The known world at the time. It's a huge swath of the known world. And he was gathering people from all of those areas. And basically, he was trying to, to gin up support from his military leaders to do what his father failed to do. He was going to avenge the wrongs of his father. He was going to go back uh, into Greece. And he was going to take on the, uh, the Greeks. And he was going to conquer the Greeks. 
And this war tribunal, uh, the, the, this war banquet is recorded in historical documents, and we have it recorded here in the book of Esther. That's just a special little bonus, by the way. Sometimes people get on to us saying the Bible, uh, you know, there's, there's factual inaccuracies, or this isn't true, or that never happened, or this person didn't exist. Um, the Bible is rife uh, with archaeological discoveries that dovetail perfectly into what the Bible has said. Right? It's just a matter of time before whatever the people who say this guy never existed is discovered in the dirt somewhere because God's word doesn't lie. But Xerxes is throwing this gigantic party, and he has a 180-day party. By the way, that is, that's a party. Right? Six months, that's a lot of a party. Right? It's not often that the seven-day party that follows the 180-day party is the short party. Like, oh, we're having a little party. It's only going to be seven days. Right? It's only going to be seven. Like, oh, I have a little party. It's going to be about 45 minutes. Come to my house. We'll have some cake. Please leave. Right, right. He has a seven-day after party. The big party, he shows off everything that he has. His palace, his wealth, his might. What he's trying to do is all, all of these generals and leaders and um, from, from all the 127 different provinces... Uh, that he has uh, control over. And these were satraps or other governors from, from cities that would come in. And he was trying to awe them with his power and wealth because when the ask was going to come at the end of the 180 days, will you join me on my quest um, to go over to Greece? He wanted them to be like, yes, because you are so powerful. And so he tries to show off his power by showing off all of the wealth uh, that the entire Persian Empire had at the time. And if you read it, like, I mean, there's a, it's a detailed account of everything that he had for this 180-day party, right? I mean, it, it, is, it is amazing greatness and, and awesomeness that he shows off. And then he sends those people home. We don't know the results of the war council. I will tell you, spoiler alert, they do actually go and invade Greece, okay? Um, you can watch the movie 300. I don't necessarily recommend watching the movie 300. There's a lot of in there that's kind of questionable to immoral in there. But the king in that movie who's invading is this Xerxes guy, right, in this, uh, this kind of dark, dark movie. So he does invade, ultimately, um, Greece. He gets enough support from this war tribunal um, to make it happen. But after that party, the big six-month party, he has a week-long party for the people who made the six-month party happen. And that's kind of nice, right? You just abused your people in your little town of Susa for six months, making them constantly wait on tables, clean up, serve party food, cook, clean, serve, cook, clean, serve, cook, clean, serve, entertain, entertain, cook, clean, serve. Right? They did all of this stuff for six months straight. He says, you guys have worked so hard, I'm going to give you seven days to just kind of unwind. And you know what? After you've worked for six months, you know what you want to do? You want to throw a party for yourself, right? I mean, no. No, no. What you want after a six-month party is a nap. That's what you want. But he didn't give him that. He said, no, we're going to have a party for you and your honor. So he honors these people. And the writer of Esther gives a very detailed uh, picture of the gardens that they were in, the type of stones that were used, the goblets made of gold. And the whole picture is to show how much wealth, how much power the king of Persia has at this time. And it's to inspire awe among those who see him. His whole goal in life is that people look at him and say, there is the guy. Right? He walks into the room and everyone's eyes shoot to him because he's got power, he's got wealth, he's got authority, right? he's, got, he's got honor given to him. He has all of these things. 
right? We think that he has all of these things, but in a matter of like three years from that party, he too will be returning from Greece utterly defeated, and Alexander the Great will be following him shortly. The end of the Persian Empire is rapidly coming. He doesn't know it. He thinks that he is sitting in the seat of the gods. But in a matter of years, the empire that his grandfather had climaxed, that his father had maintained, and that he is going to to sully um, by his uh, misguided invasion into Greece, is going to begin to crumble around him. And the reversal of fortunes that take place in people who set themselves in the seat of gods is certain. People put themselves in situations to show their worldly abundance. And as believers, we need to not fall into the trap of being in awe of people who have great wealth. Worldly abundance, right? The fact that people have houses and cars and animals and land, right? It should not impress the Christian, right? I've been into some pretty big homes. I grew up in Fort Bend County. Fort Bend County is, a, is the, the county that's kind of southwest of Harris County where Houston is. Um, and, and you know how the suburbs are, right? You can get into certain areas in the suburbs to very exclusive gated neighborhoods and you can walk into homes somewhere and you're like, whoa, I don't know what this guy does, but this house right here is impressive. Everything about it is impressive. The, the, the carpet is impressive. I was at a house in Kingwood, right? And I, and I took my shoes off, because that's what I do. Um, and I took my shoes off, and I, and I stood on this person's carpet. It was like that long, I swear. My foot got buried in the carpet. I mean, like, and you think, well, what a mess to clean. But they didn't care, because they didn't have to mess with it. Right? It's not their cleaning problem, right? It was, it was luxurious carpet. It's carpet I want in my house, and then I remember there's like 95 kids in my house. That would never work. Never, ever work, right? But, but the idea of like this wealth, and right, it, it can be impressive. And at times, we can become starstruck by what other people have. We look at what people have, we compare it to what we have, and we're like, wow, how great is that person that they have those things? But worldly abundance should never impress the Christian because we have a God whose abundance supersedes any paltry amount that the richest person on earth has. We aren't impressed by the richest people that we know because God has more. And guess what? Just just as a side note, wealth doesn't equal real power. Doesn't. Our culture might tell us differently. If you have money, you can get what you want. You can manipulate situations to get what you want. But as those people who use their wealth for unjust reasons will find out, just like Xerxes found out, there will be a reversal for them. Those people who think they put their trust in chariots, they put their trust in wealth, they put their trust in what they can own and what they touch and what they can taste and what they can feel, the things that they possess, God will flip that over on them. So don't fall into that trap of trusting in what you have. We we can do that, right? We look at our 401ks, right? We look at our retirement and we're like, okay, I have this. And then like there's a bad week and we're like, okay, I had this and now I have this, right? We we can, we can put our trust into what we own. Okay, I'm going to buy this investment property. I'm going to buy this purchase. I'm going to put this money away, and then I'll be secure and safe. But guys, your hope shouldn't be in what you've stored up here. Because what you store up here can be worthless tomorrow. Utterly and completely worthless tomorrow. Remember the 
story of, of communist Russia, right? That people would be burning their money because it was more valuable as fire than it was as money. Right? The things that we see so much value in really is not that valuable. Worldly abundance should not impress the Christian. Then we continue on to verse 8. And it says this, uh, the king during the seven-day party for the servants says, in drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. That was the edict, the rule, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all of his staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, so here's, here, by the way, you know how you know you're not a good king? This is just like an easy, easy check to see whether or not you're a good king or leader of people. If the people that are under your authority, you have to tell them whether or not they're allowed to drink. Just generally, you're not a good king. Right? Like, oh yes, you can drink today, I'll allow it. Right? That's he's trying to show how good and gracious he is. Like you can have as much or little as you want. You don't have to drink every time I drink, which was a thing back then, right? If the king drank, you would have to drink. So like if the king's over there getting totally sauced, like you better be taking small sips because like you have to drink when he drinks. He's like, there's no compulsion. Drink what you want. Like that was his ultimate gift to the people. It's like you don't have to do. You can drink. You can drink as you're thirsty, as you want. Right? He thinks that that's a sign of his graciousness, but really it's a sign of how tight-fisted and unnecessarily power-hungry he was. If I have to tell people how to enjoy a gift that I give them, it's wrong. I'm like, here's, here's a movie that I'm going to give you. You should watch it. But before you watch this movie, I want you to watch these eight movies. And then after you watch this movie, I want you to watch these seven movies. Then we're going to have a discussion about it, okay? Because if you really want to get the full enjoyment from this movie that I'm giving you, we have to see the whole picture together. Right? And you're like, I don't want that gift. Matt, stop giving me things. Right? You gave me 19 hours of homework. I have to watch the whole Avengers series so that I can see what happens when a guy snaps his fingers. Like, I don't, I don't need all of that. Just let me watch three hours, which seems like enough, right? Seems like enough. But he believes, because he is this ultimate authority, that all, everyone should, should, should cower to him. And so he says, look, guys, for the, for the next seven days, I'll let you drink as you want. And this is his, his attempt to be benevolent, but really it just shows the character of who he consistently was. His worldly authority also shouldn't impress us. Just because people have to listen to him, just because people are compelled to listen to him on threat of death or destruction, we don't, we don't fall prey to that because just like worldly wealth doesn't impress the Christian, worldly authority, authority vested on people by other people should not impress the Christian. There are people that we give a measure of honor and respect to because of the position that they've been placed in, whether in our country or in our families or in our world. But worldly authority, just authority that's vested on someone, does not impress us. We don't look at it it's like, oh, this man must be a son of the gods because they've achieved this level of success, right? When we look at our presidents, any president, picture president of order, right? Whatever you want to think about right here. But no president should impress us just because he attained the title of president of the United States, right? right? His authority doesn't impress us. What, what should impress us, right, about our president is character or leadership or whatever it is that, that, that you find to be noble inside of that office. There should be honor and respect given to leaders. Uh, we're really good at it, by the way. This is totally free. 
we're really good at giving honor and respect to leaders that we voted for. And really bad at giving honor and respect to leaders that we voted against. That's a you problem, just so you know. It's not a them problem. That's not the guy in Washington, D.C. now or the guy who will be in Washington, D.C. in four or eight years from now. Right? It's not their problem. Right? It's, a, it's a you problem <laughs> if, if, you, if you struggle with that. But ultimately, the authority that people have doesn't impress us. King Xerxes wanted people to be impressed with his, uh, just, just how generous he was because he was giving people the right to do something so basic. But he thought that his authority equaled power. But like I said, three years from this dinner, he's going to begin to witness the crumbling of his empire. He's going to lose thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers. The coalition that he built here, the 127 provinces all coming together for a common goal of beating back the Greeks, is going to become fractured. It's going to be broken because of, of, of leadership decisions that he makes and the will ultimately and the leadership that happens there. Because what happens is God takes people who put themselves up on a pedestal and he shifts them to where they belong. Pride is a dangerous sin. I want you to be aware of this in your heart, guys. Pride, if there's a sin as a pastor that I know I have to guard myself against. And there's several that I, I think about. Pride is the one, though. We stand up, we hold the Bible in our hand, we say, this is what God's Word says. Do what God's Word says. Listen to what God's Word says. And then we walk away and we're like, man, how great am I? Kicking butt, taking names, doing it for Jesus, doing pretty good. right? And we, and we can fall into that trap. But, you know, I have seen a lot of pastors who have put themselves up, 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 and then in, 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 in one news cycle, the reversal comes. There is a real reversal that takes place in the lives of people when they hold themselves as if they are awesome. Look at me, how awesome I am. The truth is only God is awesome, worthy of awe and reverence, worthy of wonder and respect. Nothing else is awesome when we see the Grand Canyon and it inspires awe in us. The reason the Grand Canyon inspires awe in our hearts is because it shows us the power of the God who can carve that in an instant, right? That, that he can create that and make that. And so the awe isn't directed at the ditch, which is a mighty impressive ditch. I'm not going to lie to you. Or the awe isn't about the ditch or the river that, that's placed there uh, to help carve that. The awe is in the creator who made that for us to enjoy. When we hold our child in our hand and we look at our child in our arms, the awe isn't inspired in how awesome I was that I made this baby. <laughs> look at how great I am that I can see my nose and I can see my eyes in it. Right? We make up what we see in our kids, obviously. Right? Like, oh, yes, that kid has my whatever. And then, like, no, no, your kid... Most of your kids look like the UPS driver. That's weird, by the way. Side note. No. Right? Like, but, but, you know, we look at our kids and we see ourselves in them, we, but, but that doesn't point back at them. We're like, look how awesome I am. No, when you hold your child, you're like, oh my goodness, how amazing this is. What, what, what's happening in your heart, whether you know it or not, is you're looking at what God has done and it inspires awe back in us. When we hold people up as awesome, it's only a matter of time before the reversal happens. And this story, the story of Esther, is a story of rapid reversals. Reversals for Xerxes over the course of the next three years. There will be a guy that we'll be introduced to later named Mordecai. He'll have a reversal from 
from, from nothing to everything. We have a man named Haman who will have everything and end up with nothing. The story is a story of rapid reversals. And what's so great about the story of Esther is God is not mentioned once in the book. It's Bible trivia there, by the way. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. But God is present from the first page to the last. He is the ultimate comparison, sovereignly driving the nation of Israel to safety and security while judging and condemning those who stand in his way of his path. God's ultimate authority will be sown and we stand in awe. If you finish the book of Esther and you stand back and you look at what God did over this story, all of a sudden we're like, that is an awesome God. Right, years ago, there was a song called Awesome God. We don't sing it much anymore. It's not really a congregational song, song anyways. Rich Mullins, yes? Yes, I got, a, I got a half nod from my wife. Getting a whole nod from Doc, I'll take it. Um, but Awesome God goes through a series of things about God that made him awesome. How he, how he handled Egypt, how he handled these things, how he, how he won these victories, how he did these things. And the idea of that song, right, it's point, like, the God that we serve is awesome. No one else is. So when you start to feel like you're awesome, just want you to know you're not. You can be good. You might even be reflecting some of God's good characteristics. You might be on a great run. But if you begin to hold yourself up as awesome, my, my promise to you is this. As you elevate yourself up, the reversal will come for you. Xerxes' reversal, the reason it's so important to know the history, by the way, of Xerxes is because the people who read this book when, when it was written like that was current history. It had just happened. Xerxes and the Persian Empire had just fallen. Right? It had just collapsed into this heap of rubble. And then we have this story written about uh, Xerxes and his wealth and his splendor and his majesty. And it's ironic that just you know, 15, 20 years before, this guy was having that party. And now the city where, where it's happening at is abandoned. It's ironic for the people in that first day and age. It doesn't take long for the reversal to take place. If you don't want to experience the divine reversal, then I encourage you to remain humble and point your awe back somewhere else. Right? Uh, the, the, the athlete who's been trained well does this. Right? They're like, man, how'd you da-da-da-da? Or the, the musician, oh, how'd you? And they're like, all glory to God. Like, it seems like a throwaway line, like all glory to God. And it may be a throwaway line for them. But the truth is, Anything you do that's impressive or good or great, anything that you make or create that, 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 that shows out some, some bit of like, man, that's impressive, is, is, is a mirrored out image of what God has done. And so we don't take credit for the good things that we've done. We give God glory for what he's doing through us. Xerxes wasn't there. He wasn't ready to give glory to God. He wasn't ready to hold himself up uh, as a vessel of what God was doing. And God was about to turn his life upside down. I pray that's not true for you today. That you're living humbly and walking in humility before God. Because if you're not, the Bible is clear. It will come for you. So walk humbly before the Lord. You may have a lot. You may have impressive things. If I was to go to your home and you were to show me all of your stuff... Uh, I might be impressed. You might Ron Burgundy me, right? Be like, oh, I have a, a, an office filled with many leather-bound books, right? Like, I might be very impressed, right? I might be impressed for a moment. But if you're holding yourself up, the reversal will come. So I'm, my, my prayer for you is that, that, that we, we learn humility. 
before it's too late. Let me pray.